Hello and welcome to the Human Factor Podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name is Michael Esau. My name is Simon Humphreys. Our guest on this episode of the Human Factor Podcast is Sheila Walsh. Sheila specializes in leadership and organizational development, focusing on inclusion, psychological safety, and performance. Her background is in coaching psychology and organizational development, with over a decade of working with clients in Ireland and internationally. Sheila is the Global Diversity and Inclusion Co-Lead for the Association of Coaching. Voted in the top 10 coaches in Dublin, by Influence and Digest in 2021 and the top 15 coaches in 2023 made the Women Who Break the Bias List 2022 with DiverseIn.com and speaks on international stages about leadership, inclusion and coaching psychology. Sheila's practice is integrative, psychologically minded, inclusive and trauma-informed. Sheila, welcome to the Human Factor podcast. Thank you so much for, for being a guest. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I think this is going to be an interesting conversation because our topic today is inclusive leadership. Leadership as a term, leadership as a practice has been debated for years and years and years. It constantly evolves and I, and I think we're going to be debating it for the next hundred years. But I just want to put the episode into context as we do for all of the episodes for our listeners. So throughout our series, we have touched many times on this crucial topic of leadership. It is an enormous topic area, and we've concluded from many of the conversations to date that leadership as an art and science continues to evolve and shift. The last 25 years has seen an explosion of change, a vortex, as Harriet Green explained very early in the series. Technology, economic, social, demographic shifts health, war, so many aspects of our lives have been disrupted and changed. As human beings, however, our DNA hasn't changed, but how we live our lives has quite fundamentally. We talk about changing expectations and preferences, a thirst for more autonomy, freedom to work anywhere, and the list goes on. So what are the implications of all of this on the workplace? The workplace is changing, and as a result, the role of the leader has had to shift too. Words like psychological safety, empathy have become big talking points as the demands and stresses of life, not just work, play heavily on people. The role of the leader today is complex and is requiring a real shift. But what is that shift and what does it all mean? During this episode, we will be exploring in detail with Sheila how she sees the role of the leader evolving and what inclusive leadership means to her. So my opening question today will be, when you hear the word leadership, what is your context and personal viewpoint? I really like the question because I think there, like many other words, we talk about the same thing and we're all talking about different things. Over the years, my definition and image of a leader has shifted through the different experiences that I've had. As it stands today, I suppose I, I go back to the very basics of it, which is that a leader is someone who people follow and follow isn't necessarily that idea of going in a direction. Follow might be thought leadership, influence, shaping the way somebody values something or considers something or reflects on something. So to me, leadership goes way beyond a formal title of leadership into how somebody interacts with other people. And quite fundamentally, I have a bit of a question over this idea of, of formal leadership roles, because I wonder if giving someone a formal leadership role naturally gives them followership or it gives them internal power, which lends more to management. So to me, leadership is much bigger than a title and it's much more about how you relate to people and whether people are deeming you as somebody that, that they want to be influenced by in some, in some way. And so that's where I kind of sit with it now is that very basic idea that a leader requires followers. Otherwise, they're not a leader. Interesting. So you brought up the two interesting labels there of leadership and and management you know i'm not trying to put words into the mouth here i'm trying to read the read the room but you obviously see a big difference between the two so for me management is is what it says in in the title it is to manage something whether that's people projects deadlines operations departments 
they manage something. Leaders, in, in my opinion, are more about keeping an eye on the future point, pointing in a direction, giving people something to buy into in terms of a vision, but they might not necessarily be responsible for delivery or they may not be managing somebody's day-to-day work or how they do things. And so to me, they have a difference simply by their their title actually is something different. But what I will say is that the way organisations are trying to increase management capacity is that they are, which is probably the more realistic idea, is that management and leadership has a lot of crossovers now, a big shared area. And so you might have a management title, but be required to do some leadership and vice versa. You could be a leader and have some management responsibilities. And so while I do think they're different to be technical about them, I I do think that they also are both, and and this is probably something that comes up a lot in the work I do, they're equally important. So because leadership has become really like, it's a bit like pop psychology was for a while. It's become like the term, people don't want to be managers, they want to be leaders now. There can be this assumption that management is less than, but if you've ever tried to run a business with a load of leaders and no managers, you'll find out that you need you need strong management for effective yeah. leadership to occur. Is it fair to say, though, that there's been so many assumptions made for quite a period of time that if you are a manager, you are expected to be a leader by by, by default? And, and, and that expectation comes from different sources. And I've, I've always challenged that and challenged that assumption. But I think there has been that assumption in a lot of areas. Yeah, and, and I think that comes a little bit with the evolution of work, that we understand that management works really good in certain structures and for certain types of outputs. Whereas in terms of employee engagement, um, employee retention, attraction, leadership speaks more to the person's kind of emotional buy-in. The other thing I'd agree with with your point, and then I'd also add there's an assumption that people who are good at a role can be good managers and people who are good at a role could be good leaders rather than understanding that there is actually a set of different technical skills, let's say, to be a leader as there is to being an effective manager. And I I think that that collapsing of of these terms can put leaders and managers under a lot of pressure because they don't know what good looks like because it depends who they're talking to. And the same shows up in the research. Um, There's research into leadership and when you look at the data, they've actually engage managers in the research, not leaders. So I I think it's coming from multiple sources, but I do think that when we take up a role, regardless of the title, we need to think about what is needed for the outputs and the effectiveness that we're aiming for, rather than get caught on which title we should or shouldn't do. I think it's worth thinking about what's actually needed here for the effective outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you talked about evolution there. So Mm. when we think about the last, say, 30 to 50 years, for example, we've seen huge change, you know, almost uh, that explosion of change. We will hear many people describe the disruption through the VUCA lens. And and and, and just to be clear on, on what VUCA is, um, it was a term that was coined by the military, uh, the US military around the time of the Iraq war, you know, that we live in a volatile times, it's very uncertain, there's huge amounts of complexity and huge amounts of ambiguity. How do you describe what is different today versus perhaps, say, 10 to 20 years ago? Because to your point, Sheila, about what is needed, I think that is a fundamental point. So what do you see as the big shift? So I think the first shift that often gets overlooked is that 20 years ago, when you went into a workplace, the age of people senior to you matched their seniority. So we we would see an age profile difference going up. Um, and depending on the industry or organisation, you might also see a class difference in, in the roles that were being fulfilled. And technology has disrupted that greatly. So has wider access to education and social supports, we'll say, within society in different countries. And so now what is happening is we have workplaces with people doing similar jobs, coming from different backgrounds, being different ages and what was considered successful 20 years ago may not be enough now to to succeed. So the easiest example for this is Zoom, okay? When, or Teams or any of the online platforms, when COVID started in any organization that didn't use an online thing, what started to happen was I started to see that the senior managers couldn't get into meetings with me as quickly as the junior managers. 
And I started to watch this and ask about it. And the reality was that the senior managers had always had someone to do the stuff they didn't want to waste their time doing. And that usually was tech because they were in an office, someone else sorted it, that was fine. At home, someone else didn't sort it. We didn't, they didn't have the same backup. No, this isn't true for all senior leaders or for anybody of a certain generation. But what we are seeing now is that the things you could kind of skip previously or overlook are now a risk. And another example of that around inclusion is whenever I do an intervention in organization, the senior leadership team are often there based on principles and practices that might not complement inclusive practices. And so they might say, we want to be inclusive, but actually they have no idea about the risk that might put them at or how they can protect themselves while remaining in a position of authority. And so I think the biggest shift is that the people within workplaces have changed the context, even outside of the marketplace and global economies. Actually, who is ending up in workplaces where and what positions they end up in disrupts some of the the old kind of ideas and traditional ideas of senior people are always older than junior people. That's been disrupted massively. The idea that senior people who have the longest tenure in an organization would have the best skills for all decision-making, well, actually the middle manager who's come from a global organization or understands a particular piece of software might be ahead of their senior team in that way. And so how power is distributed and how decisions are made and how people are seen as top performers, that has changed and it will only continue to change. And we can see that in some of the expectations that that employees have of their workplaces and the fact that people are willing to leave jobs with no other job, which we, we used to see 20 years ago. People didn't leave a job without a job unless something was absolutely awful. They'll leave jobs if they're just not nice. You know, like they're much lower standard. They're willing to leave without a backup. The other thing is we have usually have two earners in many homes, not in all homes, but many homes. 20 years ago, that was a lot less. We had one earner. So there was someone at home taking care of usually some of the day-to-day things. We now see that most people in the workplace are also taking care of the home things. That's not being taken care of by someone else. So we're seeing like an increase in takeaways and an increase in eating at work. And we see this shift because actually people don't have the same support structures traditionally that maybe existed. And that changes what becomes important and how they make decisions, what they spend their money on. And and so these shifts make a big difference to the decision-making of employees. Interesting. Simon, your thoughts? Sheila, do you think there's any change in expectation of what managers and leaders would need to have done? And what I mean by that is, these days we expect managers and leaders to be empathetic, understanding, all of these sort of terms. We probably expected that 20 years ago, but we never articulated it. Is there now more pressure because we're actively looking for those things in people as opposed to almost coming across it by accident or or finding that those people that are exhibiting those have, have risen to the top, but we, we can't quite sure why. Is there anything around that? I, I think that's, that's really interesting. I think the first thing about that is that there's a difference between employees hoping for it and organizations hoping for it and people measuring for it and expecting it. So now we see interviews and KPIs that are linked to 360 reviews or the impact that you've had beyond your own career um, advancement. So I I do think that we've done something to shift that, um, which means we're measuring it now. We can talk about it. We also, the average employee has the language. Like psychological safety was not spoken about 10 years ago. I I did not hear it in a workplace. Now most people know that word and they know what that means. The only thing I'm always a bit cautious of is there is this assumption that the best people get into management and leadership positions. And the data kind of says that isn't true, um, that there's lots of factors that contribute to who ends up being managers and leaders, and it often isn't to do with performance. But also there is, and it's very new research, but it's something to think about. There is a suggestion that people who are naturally drawn to leadership roles or who are kind of hungry for that kind of power, tend to get to those positions more frequently than those who aren't hungry for that power. And that that is concerning because they're getting there because of their own desire for that level of power, rather than getting there because the people around them follow them and trust them and feel good under their charge, I guess. I think it's important to know that 
if, if we want something, we need to measure it and we need to hold people accountable. So are you asking these questions in interviews to performance reviews, count them? Um, and then the second part is this assumption that can be built into some people's belief that the better people become managers and leaders. I would always challenge that. Lots of really good people become managers and leaders and lots of people who are drawn towards power positions become leaders and managers. And that isn't necessarily in the interest of their teams or their organization. And so those people also tend to succeed as well. So this is the challenge. You can be uh, compassionate and you can be effective, but we do know that people who are drawn to power do tend to succeed in power positions because they're willing to do things to other people in order to win. And so I would never assume that someone is there because they've earned it. I would always assume that someone is there and needs to consider their new responsibility. There's there's always a so what, I, I think, on there's got to be a consequence on, on all of this. And Simon, I was reflecting on your question there. And when I look back through my career and I look back through critical incidents, I can name quite comfortably three or four leaders who did not have the best impact on me as a human being. And I didn't respect, I didn't value. And, and in some cases, they, they caused quite a bit of damage. And I think one of the so what's is, is that if you are in a row, either, you know, if you're called a manager, you're called a leader, let's not, you know, get into the semantics for the moment. You are largely accountable for a group of people at that moment in time. And we know when a human being comes to work that they have physiological basic needs that they that need to be fulfilled in a day so they can go home and go, I had a good day. Now, you, you raise a very interesting point, and this is where I was wanted to get you with the so what. People will leave today without a job. And this, for me, is quite a big so what, that people will vote with their feet. Their voice is louder, I think. And we're going to be doing an episode soon, Simon and I, on the power of voice. You know, th there's no doubting that, you know, people's voice is, is heard today. It's getting much, much louder. People vote with their feet. Engagement scores are pretty low. There is quite a compelling so what here, isn't there? Mm. So yes, people will leave. You you run a risk in terms of certain legislation of be of yeah. that manager putting the organisation at risk. But there, there's to me there's a step further, which is if your organisation is facilitating managers or leaders who are not actually performing for the organisation, they're not supporting the organisation's needs through supporting employees. You're also sending a message to people about what you value. And often when I get called into an organization and we're doing a piece of work, everyone will tell me about that one person who is is the issue, but that one person is so well protected for different reasons that it becomes hard to actually address it. And that's where I say, well, if that person can get to that level in your organization, it isn't the person that the, the issue is. It's that the organization hasn't put in the guardrails and the processes to ensure that this can't occur. And that involves the KPIs, the debriefs, the 360s. It, it involves actually saying, how is this person getting away with this? Rather than what people tend to do is let's get rid of that person. And I'm like, there's always another person who, who wants to be in the role. That's not the solution. The solution is to learn from this about how we facilitated somebody who is not good for our business really to get to this position and use this as a learning to prevent it in the future and then to correctively manage it. And people are often surprised when I say that, that actually you can't have an awful leader or manager in an organization if it isn't being facilitated in some way by the organization. And that's actually a gift to the organization to say, right, we have that person abusing power, doing something ineffective. Let's look at how, how we are facilitating it. What don't yeah. we have in place for accountability here? Let, let's do that. And that's how you strengthen the organization, not just now, but you create actually a sustainable business moving forward. Totally agree. So let's dig, let's dig in then. Let's start digging in a little bit then into this term called inclusive leadership. So Simon, you touched on psychological safety and uh, a need for empathic leaders, for example, or compassionate uh, leaders. And these have become real talking points. As you said, Sheila, you know, psychological safety, you'll, you'll hear it everywhere now, or the psychological contract between me and, and my manager. So devil's advocate... Are these the basis of what you describe as inclusive leadership? So no. The first thing I would say is there is a massive difference between empathy and compassion. And I have a pushback on people talking about empathetic leadership. 
for two main reasons. One is it burns out leaders because you have to constantly touch into your own experience of that emotion to be empathetic. And the second is that suggests that leaders would have the capacity to empathize with every experience that their team has. And if you're a man and you you haven't carried a baby, then empathizing might be very challenging for you, but compassion wouldn't be. What I mean by compassion is it, the, de- the working definition I use is compassion is the ability to appreciate someone's experience and their feelings about that experience without putting it through my own filter. Whereas empathy requires me to have a connection to a similar experience or emotion to give it value. So empathy has to go through my system and that burns people out. And we have this term called compassion fatigue, but we know that it's actually empathy fatigue when you look at the research that they're discussing. And a lot of managers burn out from it, but also they inaccurately, they can't empathize with something they haven't experienced, but they can be compassionate. And so for me, inclusive leadership, I use a bit of a scientific definition. Inclusion is the balance of facilitating somebody's sense of belonging, as well as valuing their differences. And those differences aren't just about identity. Those differences are strengths, ways of thinking, viewpoints, experiences. It goes beyond maybe some of the the way that we talk about inclusion at the moment um, in workplaces. And then leadership is influencing people. When you put them together, the foundation for me for inclusive leadership is very similar to transformational leadership or servant leadership, but with this additional piece, which is I facilitate my people doing their best work and thriving by making sure that I facilitate and invite experiences of belonging and also valuings of difference. And that's what separates it from other forms of leadership. And sometimes to be an inclusive leader, you might actually have to let people down. You might have to disappoint people. And there's this assumption that inclusive leadership is about being kind. Now, it's about being respectful, but kind might not be in your nature. You don't necessarily need to be kind for someone to feel like they belong and are valued. And also, you don't necessarily even have to be liked. Like somebody doing inclusive leadership is constantly focusing on how they can help their team perform using belonging and uniqueness as a kind of balancing uh, piece. And so I think that's really important. And empathy does not match inclusive leadership. No matter what anybody's telling you, just scientifically it doesn't work because you will only be able to empathize with those with similar experiences, which lead to more in-group and more sameness bias. Whereas compassion says, actually, I can appreciate people are experiencing what they're experiencing it in the way they're describing it to me. And I can use that to inform my understanding of the situation and my decisions rather than I have to know what that feels like to get it or to help with it. This is why I love co-hosting this podcast because we get to learn and we get to debate. (laughs) And it makes me think, which I think is really important because we can't stand still. And I just love the way you've explained the difference between the two. I'm going to come on to another question on it in, in just a second, but I think Simon may have a reflection too. Yeah, Sheila, just on what you were saying there, I guess my question is, does a good leader need to be liked? And you said no. I, I think that's interesting because you, you look at charisma uh, as, as a quality of a good leader, but it's it's not an essential component, is it? Because otherwise they would be liked. Yes, yeah, so, so this is really interesting. So the first thing is uh, we like confidence over competence. We know that we have a bias to leaders who present confidently, even if their competence is lower. We assume they're the same thing because it's quicker to make a decision. So in that way, we like charisma because it's a it's a form of demonstrating confidence um, in oneself. Here's the thing, depending on your identity, being liked as a leader has a different impact. So many a male leader can be disliked and still be respected. But we know that the research for female leaders tells us that when female leaders aren't liked, also respect seems to be reduced for them. So there's a likability bias for women leaders. So I'm not suggesting that liking isn't required for certain identities. I'm just saying being liked doesn't make naturally make you an effective leader. It doesn't necessarily result in effectiveness to be liked or not to be liked. But it does impact on how people relate to you and perceive you and whether you're meeting the kind of social expectations people have. And that example of gender is just the kind of easiest one to point to. Yeah. There's other There's other really good examples of different identity groups require more social approval than others to lead. 
because of the idea of what we have as a good leader. So anyone who doesn't fit that image has to be more likable to remain impactful and influential. Interesting. My father was a manager throughout all of his career, and he always used to say to me, popularity does not win prizes, Michael. And, <laughs> uh, and I was, when I was young, I used to sit there and go, hmm, okay, I'll sit with that one for a while. But I, I did get to understand what his point. It, you know, he, he, he fundamentally believed that respect was way, way, way more important than being liked. And I think that's part of your point. So let's just go back then to the inclusive leaders, because you talk about the three P's of inclusive leadership. And Simon and I don't know what they are. So we're, we're, we're as intrigued, hopefully, as our listeners. So, so what are the three P's of inclusive leadership? So the three P's are people, performance and potential. And what I like about this is that these three P's give a systemic point as well. So the, these three P's, the people respond to your consumers, your service users, as well as your employees, as well as your managers, as well as your subcontractors, your leaders, all people that are part of the process of your business. Performance is really important because there's been a bias towards individual performance in a lot of kind of white Western organizations meaning that we do a lot of KPIs based on the individual. And what we forget is that a team of six with average performers together can supersede six individual performers in a group. And so inclusive leadership points to the fact that we can have strengths within collectives as well as individually. So it allows you to develop um, the performance of an individual through a particular lens, but then also think about team performance and organizational performance. And are we, are we measuring them in a robust enough way? So what I have found when I bring inclusive leadership in to organizations is often they aren't actually measuring uh, performance beyond individual performance or targets. And so they're leaving a lot of potential on the table. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but they're also leaving a lot of risk, opportunity, learnings, innovation on the table because they've got such a linear way of looking at performance that they're not considering what they're leaving kind of untapped, whereas inclusive leadership opens that in a different way. And then the potential is really interesting because inclusive leadership is about the potential of the group and the potential of the people in front of you, rather than expecting them to fit into kind of a cookie cutter idea of who they should be. Yeah. But it also goes a step further. We know the research tells us inclusive leadership leads to more innovation and creativity. And there are links, they're not strong enough yet for anyone to say, Inclusive leadership results in more money, but there are really strong links to suggest that they do. It does. Mm -hmm. And so that's the potential you're increasing by using inclusive leadership in place of maybe other forms of leadership. And then there is that innovation. That is the potential you have in the marketplace that your leaders might not usually think about. So your, your manager who's in charge of a department might not think about innovation in his role. But if you're using inclusive leadership, it, it's inbuilt into what occurs when you have inclusive conversations and you manage inclusively. So those three P's cover each aspect, we'll say, of organizational performance. The people, how you do performance, and then the potential in the marketplace, as well as the potential of every individual and, yeah. and every team and, and so on. So to me, that helps people figure out where they need to focus their efforts and how to bring inclusive leadership to their organization. I don't believe in like just going in and, and suggesting that it should be changed. I believe that you look at what their challenges and needs are, and then yeah. you, you consider if inclusive leadership can support closing that um, or, or improving that. And that's how you introduce. I don't believe in introducing inclusive leadership because somebody said it would be good. I think it has to be directly related to business needs. Yeah. Just taking a step back, it brings in the wider, doesn't it, of culturally, who are we? You know, what kind of organization do we aspire to be? And then from an organizational design, how, how do we actually go about with the processes and the links and the joints to make that happen? Because organizational behavior is not easy. If, for example, the desire is that, you know, I'm a manager, but our organization is committed to, you know, a style of leadership that is more inclusive. How do you get everybody in the organization understanding that and, and are able actually to do that? That, that's not a small piece of work, is it? No. So it isn't a small piece of work if your goal is to achieve inclusion. But actually, that's not the goal. Inclusion and inclusive leadership is the process to achieve the business goals. So usually 
the most effective implementation of this is somebody says, this is a barrier we have, come in and consult and tell us how we can improve that. And what happens is the team I work with and the people I work with learn how to use inclusive leadership to solve that problem. So they're not adopting a new form of leadership mm. in the sense of like, for the sake of it, they're actually solving a real problem they experience with this approach. And then that's how it, it becomes kind of integrated. And then there's a couple of things. You can do an organizational wide approach. Like you said, that's that big piece that most people yeah. are overwhelmed by. Or you can look at the challenges and commit to using inclusive leadership as an approach to solutions. And yeah. what starts to happen is it's just how people solve problems. It's just how people do things. It starts to be embedded. But the biggest challenge I think that occurs when you, when you mention org design here is that often the barriers to the challenges people are experiencing are actually in the design yeah. and organizations afraid to review that or to address that. But what I found is organizations that rather than doing big redesigns, make core decisions ab about the areas that are effective, mm. tend to find it much easier to implement these changes because they, they solve a problem with this decision rather than try to redesign the organization from yeah. scratch. And, and that is easier to do. Like inclusion is not a result because it just, just the word of it for inclusion to exist, exclusion has to exist. So inclusion is not a result. It is a way yeah. to bring more innovation, creativity, and focus on the actual outcomes you're trying to achieve more yeah. effectively. But as we said at the, at the beginning of the conversation, we are in an evolution. We can't stand still. We have to adapt to the context that's being brought into the workplace which has largely been driven by the changing preferences, the demographics, et cetera, of the people. So, okay, so you mentioned earlier, though, about measurement. And I think one of the, the terms that, that you talked about with us was about taking an evidence-based approach. So, you know, one of the greatest challenges, you know, when we're driving change, solving problems, thinking about different business outcomes is evidence and building that evidence-based approach. What do you consider to be, therefore, then, one of the best ways to achieve this? Evidence has to be context relevant. So I, I try to take a couple of different approaches. I do believe that actual data from an organization is probably the best evidence. So a lot of evidence-based approaches are suggested, but they're not taking into account the context that they were, the evidence was developed within really, and, yeah. and organizations are trying to replicate. So I often look for qualitative data from employees because that gives you some of the dynamics that can't be picked up in traditional well-being or employee engagement questionnaires. I then would use a form of questionnaire depending on what we're exploring. But one of the things that I think can be really helpful data then as well is, is looking at how that compares to what some of the research is saying and what the research tells us. So not just looking at the data and making a conclusion, but looking at it within the context of other organizations and other research. One of the most underutilized pieces of data in organizations is the qualitative data. And the reason that's being underutilized is it's really hard to manage. It's like mm -hmm. a lot of information and you've got to analyze not what someone is saying, but what they mean by what they're saying. And that takes a lot of time, but good qualitative data from an organization is really helpful in making good organizational decisions. And there's lots of ways of getting that depending on the challenge you can collect it informally in conversations. You can collect it in group settings. You can create workshops to collect it. You can have anonymous contributions. There's lots of ways to collect that data, but that data gives you a nuance about the organization that maybe some of the standard approved tests don't always give you. And I suppose that's important in making decisions because if you aren't collecting data from your people and you're, you're collecting it about your people in some way, so diversity rather than their experience of being included. Well, what ends up happening is you make assumptions that are probably cultured by the organization, which is probably part of the original challenges that people are facing. And so it's really important to be aware that how you understand your data as an internal member of a team is going to be altered by your roles, responsibilities and the pressures. So like, it is not unusual for me to hand a report in and for a particular department to say, I'm not handing that to the board even though I was hired to hand it to the board. Well, they're now not handing it to the board unless I rewrite yeah. it. Now, there are things that are good about rewriting, like you can manage tone better and things like that. But sometimes what they're saying is you're acknowledging us as part of the problem. Yeah. And if you do that, we don't look as good. So we want you to talk about everyone else being part of the problem. 
And so sometimes I would say that it's not just about the evidence that you've collected, but how that evidence has been understood and interpreted and yeah. by who. Many a consultant in my position gets told indirectly or directly, you can change that and have future work with us or you cannot change it and don't have future work with us. And sometimes they don't say it, they just disappear after yeah. you refuse to change it. But I, what I think especially boards or senior leadership teams need to start doing is actually making sure that the reports they're getting are unbiased and are informed, not just from within the organization, but in some way in context to industry and the marketplace, because it's not evidence if it sits on its own. It's just data that sits. So I do think we need to put it within certain contexts and comparisons and not just internally, but externally. If you're going to make key decisions on it, you need to take in multiple stakeholder positions. It's it's a funny one, isn't it, right? When you, you talk about the word evidence, quite a hard word, isn't it? It has different connotations. But the simple, harsh reality is, you just mentioned the word assumptions again, about diversity data, for example. You make an assumption based on that bit of data. You know, Simon and I are doing multiple, having multiple conversations about analytics and about data and getting into the use of evidence. Because one of the other things that we're trying to understand as well is, is how do you get buy-in? And you're, you're almost answering the question for us. You know, how do you get buy-in from people to contribute fully with confidence? Um, it's going to be read. It's, it's going to be used. It's going to be acted upon. Because the, these are some of the challenges also is that, well, I don't believe the organization or I don't believe my manager or nothing's going to happen. So what's the point? Now, I think we're breaking those barriers down because I think people are more and more inclined that, to share their voice. I certainly, in recent years, have found that I'm putting much more free flow text than I've ever done. I, I used to answer the questions, right? But now, no, I've got observations. I've got pieces of feedback and I'm bullet pointing them out. So, the, the, you know, there is a shift, I think, in how we're looking at how we share evidence, but it's still what does the organization do with that? And do I believe that it will be acted upon? So I have two pieces. I'm, I'm going to throw a spanner in the works around evidence because I, I think you've brought it up. So I'm going to throw a spanner in the work about that first. So I have a real issue with people saying evidence-based, right? I mm. say it because it means something in academia and it means something about what methods I'm using and not using. My issue with evidence-based practice is it is only evidenced within an exact context with an exact practitioner in an exact moment. And even if it's replicated, so for instance, I'm going to use a model. CBT is a really uh, well-appreciated therapeutic model, right? Considered evidence-based. One of the issues is that most of that research with CBT has been done with some of the world's experts in CBT in a very controlled environment with certain conditions. That is not the reality of most people using CBT. And I would say the same goes for organizational practices. The evidence-based practices that we're using are evidenced in a very particular context. And I am always curious about understanding that before assuming it is the best solution. I think what we should be talking about is research or data-driven decisions. And if we were thinking about data-driven, we're saying, let's look at evidence-based practices as, as defined by academics who have hit the standards to use that term. Let's also look at what the data of the people we engage with says. Let's look at the biases in curating this information let's understand that even evidence-based practices are limited. So one of my big pushbacks, especially in the psychological community, is all evidence-based practices was a hypothesis at some point, was just an opinion that they went out to prove. But actually most of the theories that we use, just opinions, they may or may not have been proved or we may have just kept using them so they became popular. So I would always say if someone's going to say evidence-based, the word evidence suggests power that may not be accurate to its value in the setting so i think we should be more we should be looking for people using evidence base because it means that they're they're thinking about their work beyond their own application but i don't think we should assume that that means it's best practice which is something different or that yes. it's the best solution in this setting so i like data-driven decision making i think that's really good and um, because we get to decide what data and how we interpret it and we're not suggesting that it is a truth we're saying it is helpful for now for here in this reality and then the second thing I was going to say about that evidence-based thing, and I'm after blanking on on the second point, so we'll we'll move on without it. But I, I just think we need to think about evidence-based more deeply than what we currently do. We need to yeah. not assume it is best practice or it is therefore more trustworthy. I find the most trustworthy interventions occur when the people involved in implementing the changes are involved in informing the intervention. 
yes. regardless of what best practice is outside of that. That makes sense. So let's just take a look forward then, just to think about the next decade. So how do you ultimately see the role of the leader or leadership evolving as we sort of head into the, the next decade, if you like? We can see already that we're moving away from hero leadership. We're moving away from the great man theory that, that one person would have all the knowledge and and would be born into it in some way based on family or, or tradition. We're seeing a move away from this idea of being born into greatness and and understanding that that leadership isn't about having all the answers. I think that's going to get bigger. What we're starting to see is more specialties coming out of universities. We're starting to see people with more specialist knowledge rather than general knowledge. And what is happening with that means that leaders are going to have to be able to work with people who know things they don't know. And I already see that evolution occurring, but I believe it's going to become more and more with the likes of AI, with increases in the speed of the workplaces and the global market. If you want to be an effective leader, who will have a job in 10 years and you're still effective, then it's really going to be about your level of self-esteem and self-worth that you don't have to be the smartest person in that room and that you don't always need the answers to be valid. And that is going to take more and more ability to be really good at facilitating the right answers and the right people and the right knowledge rather than having it. And that is really, really challenging in risky positions because the more senior you become, contrary to kind of common belief, the more risk you're at because the more public you are more your decisions impact things. So being able to emotionally regulate, have enough self-esteem and self-worth and to facilitate the best outcomes possible. I think that's that's what we're looking at over the next 10, 20 years, um, especially in, in the time of AI. Interesting. Just it's interesting you mentioned about AI. I mean, if we think back to the data-driven, for example, and you, you made that point that qualitative data, all that free flow data, analyzing it and making sense of it that's a natural area where you can see ai playing a role to actually start to make sense perhaps of all of this data you know and not to dot the i's and cross t's but actually just to t try and distill some of that and to draw some conclusions from it but perhaps maybe at least the ai models that i've been engaging with so far they're they're but the biases built into them are really yeah. strong so I, yeah. I i've i've done it done a little bit to test it not in my um, academic work, but in my in my industry work. And it's actually not helpful, at least this level of knowledge. One of the things about qualitative data is that the person interpreting it informs yeah. the, the answers. And so I inform it from a like org psychology lens, an org development lens, a humanistic lens. If we get to a point where we can program AI to utilize our same decision-making in analyzing, then, and I think we could get to that, then it might be helpful. But what I will say is from an inclusion lens, AI has some of the biggest inbuilt biases because they exist in the world and that's where it's taking its data from. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we need to be careful with using AI for interpreting, at least at this point. I'm hoping next year my life will be made much easier and something <laughs> will release really good quality where you can programming positioning, positionality better. Very interesting observation, right? Because I think we're all in the audience at the moment, aren't we? Sort of looking at it and, and playing around with it. But wh where does the limits lie? Where does it go? So let's get to our last question. My notes are full. You've shared a, a huge amount already. And I always feel quite guilty when I ask this question. But if you have some leave behinds, Sheila, for people listening today, what would they be? I think the top one is to start where you are. So a lot of people are like, when I when I have the body, when I have this, when I have that, when I have the house, when I have the partner, when I get the promotion, when I get the qualification, everyone can start with where they are. And this includes your team. And, and I think that that's probably the most important thing people need to consider. We do a lot of waiting for permission and waiting for approval. We can all just start with where we are. And that includes everything from work to social impact. And then the second one, and this one might get me in trouble. Don't assume it's you. So I would always say to people, yes, assume if you're having a pattern that there's something about you in that. But also what we know now from understanding systems better is that sometimes we experience things because it's a pattern within the system. Mm -hmm. And I think the most effective leaders can assess the difference between a personal or professional issue that they're having and a systemic pattern that's occurring, causing them issues. If anyone's listening and they're like, that feels like, I don't even know what you mean by that then that's actually probably a good place to start then. So start with where you are, which is get curious about, can you tell the difference between an individual challenge and a systemic pattern that causes challenges for your people or you? Two top tips. 
what a great conversation what a great debate i've absolutely i've absolutely lo loved it and and it's interesting i'm sort of looking at my pages of notes here and i'm in a really reflective mood <laughs> i almost need how to go away and go hmm what do i think about that let me internalize that and i think again that's always the sign of a really really good conversation very interesting i think there's a lot of food for thought and i think the the bit that Simon and I are curious about more than anything is, is we cannot stand still. And today reinforces for me, we're peeling the layer of this onion because we don't know it all. We simply don't. And this conversation more than any is an example of peeling another layer of that onion to go, well, where are we heading with leadership? And and what does that look like? And, and what does it mean in terms of the organizational context and just the human context, if we like? So... Wonderful. Sheila, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have a lot to reflect on now as well because of your questions. So that that's a good sign for me as well. So thank you very much, both of you. Oh, Simon, I've left that conversation with more questions, I think, than I probably started with. I think that's always a good sign of a conversation and a debate. The topic of leadership is so broad there's a lot of breadth to it. There are so many spin-offs of it. And I think we've just narrowed in on, on one particular part today. So what were your conclusions? As you say, it's a broad topic. But I think the other observation I would have is it's also a personal topic. Yeah, yeah. I think people look for different things in people that are leading them. So it's not always the same thing that will motivate one person to follow a leader as another person to follow a leader. I guess two parts of the conversation came out for me. I mean, the first one, which we touched on in the conversation, was around the, the likability, the respect mm. versus charisma. I, I understand what Sheila was saying about the fact that you don't necessarily have to like a leader to respect them and follow them. But if you probe deeper into that question and say, well, what if I dislike the leader? Would I then follow them? And I'm not sure, you know, I look back at my own personal history, there are people I've worked for in the past that I've not particularly liked, but I respect them and I will follow them and I will I will be inspired by what they say because they, they have my respect. However, they have also had people in my past that I've disliked and I would not follow them. So mm. it, you know, for me, it, there's almost a point where that likability bias does kick in once you're beyond neutral and into negative feelings about the person, I think then the likability bias is maybe too much to overcome. But again, I'm not sure. It started me thinking. The conversation really got me thinking at that point. Uh, I think the other bit where uh, Sheila was talking about, which I, I, I really agreed with, was that she was talking about the evidence and she was talking about data that we were, we were gathering. And obviously, you know, we talk with a lot of organizations that are gathering experience data as opposed to just transactional data. Mm. But it has to be in the right context and it has to be relevant. Otherwise, it's data for the sake of data. Yeah, we then got into, well, well maybe AI will help with this. And, and yes, potentially it, it will help with this. It's, it's very good at sifting through huge pools of data. But it's got to be trained correctly. It's got to be. It's got to be know what to look for. And I think you still have to be asking the right question of the AI to get the right answer. And we we almost touched on that with with Sasha in a previous episode, wasn't it? If you're not asking the right questions, you're never going to get the right answer. So yeah. just having data, I think, won't get you there. It's it's trying to look beyond what that data is telling you and saying what does that really mean. And I think yeah. and, and Sheila touched on that. You know, it's a. It's not what people are saying, but what they mean by what they're saying. Yes. And that's yeah. that, that, that extra, that, that's almost a, a data plus one, isn't it? it? It's beyond just having data. What about yourself? I mean, there's a lot in the conversation, wasn't there? Yeah, I think your point about that likability is is interesting. And I think you and I were reflecting that, does it also depend on the expectation of the individual in that particular team? Because we're all different people. And that's what I was trying to get at with the so what. Sheila, you know, differentiate between the two, between a manager and a leader. And some people will say, well, hang on a second. I just expect my manager to be an inspirational leader also. Yeah, they're managing the team, they're managing the output, they're managing the performance, but I actually expect them to be an inspirational leader too. And is that assumption wrong? So it then begs the question of how do we redefine leadership as we go forward? And and Sheila was very clear, wasn't she, about the fact that the context has changed in the last 20 years. 
demographics have changed that. Access to learning and development and growth have changed that. The age profiles have changed. But as we look into the future, the, the profile of the leader, in her opinion, will be different. It will be more of a facilitative leader. And I think that's right. I think as technology moves us on in, in, in a great deal, I think execution will become easier. So the question then is, is how is that facilitated? And, and I really like that. I thought her way of looking at empathy and compassion was very interesting. I think we've been talking about empathic leaders and, and empathy being such a, a strong quality required by a leader. But I think there's food for thought there. It'd be interesting to see what our listeners make of that. Do they agree? Do they disagree? And the last point about data-driven, that was my other big one as well. It has to be in context, doesn't it? It has to be the meaning. How is it intentioned? And I asked the question about AI and she's not convinced that it's ready yet. So, yeah, I've got more questions, I think. Again, I just keep looking back in my past and I, I look at somebody who's managed me. Am I being led by them or am I being managed by them? And that for me is a bit of a difference. I don't necessarily have to be led by them to be effectively managed. Yeah, I can be managed. You tell me what to do or you tell me what you expect and I will do that. That doesn't necessarily drive great performance, but it, it means I'm effective because I'm yeah. doing, I'm clear what I'm doing. And I, you know, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, haven't we? Being mm -hmm. clarity and all those sort of things. But as long as there's somebody in the organization that's showing leadership and, and, and excellent at leadership, then does it matter that my immediate line manager is not a strong leader? Maybe that maybe that dilutes a little bit because as long as there's somebody I can follow within yeah. the organization, that, that still attaches me to the organization. It doesn't have to be my direct line manager per se, but as long as my line manager is still effective. I mean, if they're a poor leader, then they're going to have a negative effect, aren't they? It's interesting there. You, you see, we inter, we inter, you just said my manager is a poor leader. Right. No, I'm not saying my manager is a poor leader. No, 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 trouble no, now. No, no, no. But no, if no, no, my manager yeah, is a poor yeah. leader, no, no, yeah. But it, but but again, though, I think this is the debate in point, isn't it? Is that is do I expect my manager to be a leader of some kind? I think many people will think, yeah, I do, and therein's the nub. But I think you hit on another word there about effective. One of the reasons we do the podcast, you know, is we want to learn, of course, but. Is there a holy grail, which is a great place to work, where everybody are as effective as they possibly can be in a really healthy, inclusive environment that just recognizes people for who they are? Is this the kind of holy grail? But to get there, for that to happen, many, many, many different little pieces have to happen. And leadership is one of those. And, and I've always held the view that managers, leaders can make or break organizational culture, can make or break whether I stay or I go, whether I'm effective or I'm non-effective, whether I'm committed or I'm compliant, I'm engaged or am I disengaged. There, therein lies the so what. Before you get me in trouble with my boss. I, I know you were talking hypothetically. I'd never seek to get you into trouble. Right. Thank you, Simon. I think that was interesting. And I think you and I will be probably picking the bones out of that one for a few more episodes to come. But... Anyway, until then, customary cup of tea, I think. Um, and I hope everybody enjoys the conversation. Bye. -bye.